Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, I just, I just really am so thankful for this time this morning. Uh, a time and a place that we could come and gather, each one of us here waiting to hear from you. Lord, with our Bibles open, with our hearts prepared, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would use this time right now and use me in this place to speak the words that you have already prepared for us to hear, Lord. I thank you, Jesus. Lord, let us be challenged this morning. Let us be changed as we go out of here. Lord, let us be convicted if need be this morning. So we might come to you in confession and be cleansed. I thank you for that, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, last week, we looked at how Jesus connected his crucifixion to the time of Passover, where they were um, right then, which they were just about to celebrate. You know, the time of Passover had been a feast of remembrance and celebration for the Jews since the time of Exodus, since the time they left. From that year forward, they had celebrated Passover every single year. Where they would take in a, a lamb for four days and examine it to make sure that it was without fault, and then they would sacrifice the blood of that lamb, and then they would paint that blood on their doorposts in remembrance of how when the, the Israelites who came out of Egypt did that, the angel of death passed over their house and spared them from death. And they remembered that every single year. But this year that we are reading about, Jesus connected his death to Passover. And by connecting his sacrificial death to the Passover, Jesus emphasizes his earlier statement that all of this, he says, all of this and all of this is God's plan had been prepared from the foundation of the world. It was his plan from the beginning. Do you know that to help us better understand God and his plans, God gave us earthly experiences that are shadows of greater heavenly realities. That's how I kind of explain a parable. You know, a parable, Jesus will use a parable. It's a, an earthly story to explain a greater heavenly reality. But he also gave us experiences here that we live in, experiences that are shadows of a greater heavenly reality. Take marriage, for example. Well, marriage is a real earthly experience. I, I don't know why that makes me laugh, but when I wrote that down, it made me laugh. I was like, yeah, it's an experience for sure. Marriage is a real earthly experience, and it is just a shadow of a greater heavenly reality. That is a believer's relationship to Jesus, our bridegroom. We've looked at that even as we looked at how the, the marriage would work and how Jesus is going to return and take us to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Marriage, as we understand it, is a shadow of every believer's relationship with Jesus Christ as we are the bride. He is the bridegroom. 
Passover also, while it was a real earthly experience, ultimately it was a shadow of Jesus and his sacrificial death, whose blood saves us from death. We looked at that last week in detail. We also looked at Mary's worship of Jesus as she anoints his head with oil and wipes his feet with her hair, unconcerned with what anyone thought or how much it cost her. All week I asked myself if, if I do the same. Or do I balance my worship between the opinion of others and what it's going to cost me? Then as I was preparing, getting all the details ready for today, the Lord reminded me of a, a passage in First Chronicles 21. It was a, it's recorded that David, while he was king, went to Joab and said, I want you to go out and I want you to number all the people. Contrary to what God wanted. He didn't want that, but David was like, no, I want to know. And Joab was like, no, why, 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 why do you want to do this? And he says, just do it. And so Joab went out and he numbered all of the people. And he came back and, and told David what the number was. And it says that God became angry with David. And so he came and ultimately um, brought a plague against the people because David was in rebellion against God by numbering the people. Well, David then goes to God and, and he asks for forgiveness. He says, Lord, I'm the one who sinned. and why, why take it out on the people? Lord, please forgive me of sinning against you. So God tells David, I want you to go to the threshing floor of a man named Ornan, and I want you to there build an altar and offer a sacrifice in worship to me. So David sets out to go to the threshing floor of Ornan, and as he's on his way, Ornan looks out and sees David coming, and so he goes out and he meets him. And David says to Ornan, please, um, let me buy your threshing field, a uh, threshing floor, so that I can build an altar and offer a sacrifice to God. And this is what, what Ornan replies. He says, take it to yourself and let, the, let my Lord the king do what is good in his eyes. Look, I also give you the oxen for burnt offerings, the threshing implements for wood, and the wheat for the grain. I give it all. Ornan says to David, when David says, I'm coming to worship the Lord on your threshing floor, let me buy it from you. Ornan says, you know what? Just take it all. Take the threshing floor, take the oxen, take the wood, take the wheat, take it all in order to worship God. What Ornan was saying is, I don't care what anyone thinks and I don't care what it costs me to worship and David's reply actually is even more impactful to me. He says, I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings which, with that which costs me nothing. David says, I will not worship the Lord without it costing me something. So again, I go back and I ask myself, am I balancing my worship of Jesus Christ uh, based on what others might think and what it's going to cost me to do it? Or like Ornan, am I saying, take it all. It's his anyway. Take it all. You know, what is it that we're holding back? Your possessions. <laughs> They're not yours. 
They're gone in an instant. Do you know, do you know I, I came to a really quick realization of how quickly you can lose possessions when I came out to my car this morning and someone had broken into and gone through all three of my cars in my own driveway. You know what they got? Nothing. <laughs> There's nothing of value in my cars. In fact, what they did was they pulled out all the trash from the uh, glove compartment and stuff that I was like, oh, I should have thrown that out. So they did me a favor. <laughs> but for an instance, I was like, oh my goodness, did I leave anything of value in here? Because it would have been gone, just like that. What am I holding back? Am I holding back my finances? Let me tell you what, that, that comes and goes. You know how quick that comes and goes? <laughs> I know you know, it's Christmas. You know how you make money and it's gone immediately. You're like, <laughs> how about your time? Time is one of those things, it's called one of the pr most precious commodities, right? Because we can't, like, once it's spent, it's gone. Did you ever accidentally sleep in one morning to like, like 10 o'clock, you wake up and you're like, oh, 10 o'clock, I know, Steve, is, that's like half your day. <laughs> and I think when that happens, oh, I just wasted a few hours this morning. It's gone. I can't get it back. Is it so precious to you that you're holding it back in worship? It's like, well, well I, would go this, I would do this. I would go to prayer. I would come to church. I would do these things, but you know, I don't really have that much time. What is it? Like Ornan, are we able to say, Lord, take it all. I give all. Finally, last week, we read that Jesus sent two of his top guys to just go and set the table. Again, I was challenged to consider if I'm willing to do the small things that the Lord is asking me to do, or am I holding out for a management position? <laughs> We saw how one man, Edward Kimball's simple act of obedience, of, of sharing the gospel with one 19-year-old kid, ultimately changed the world. By the way, do you understand that he never saw any of that? He won't know any of the impact that his one small act of obedience had until he gets to heaven. And then he'll know. But he didn't know when he did it. He didn't know the aftermath of it. All he knew was that he was being obedient to do the one small thing that God had said to go and set the table. That brings us to where we are in chapter 26 today. Verse 20. I got it. I knew it was there. Chapter 20. Let's take a look. When evening had come, he sat down with the 12. Now they were eating and he said, surely I say to you, one of you will betray me. All right. So they're sitting down for the Passover meal. And let me, let me um, paint a picture for you because I, wanna, I want you to see it in your mind how they're sitting. Um, how many of you have seen like the Last Supper picture where it's like Jesus and, and everyone's like, and they're all like down this table like, like they're being filmed, right? And actually, um, they would have been sitting at a, a, a table. It, it's called the triclinium. Okay, it's kind of like a U shape like this, right? So they'd be sitting on these kind of beds 
um, that is a, a, sh- a U-shape like this with a table in the middle. And they don't sit like we would sit. They actually lounge like this, where they'd be leaning on their left elbow, lounging like this, um, like one after the other. And they use their right hand to, to eat with. So they're, imagine like this, right? So when it says, you know, when John says that he was the one that, the, the apostle that Jesus loved, was leaning back against his breast, that's because that's how they were all kind of lounging like this, sitting like this, okay? So they're sitting around this table, and they're all eating, and they're, they're all, they've, they're, they've got their hand going, and then, you know, they're going at the bread, and they're going in the, what's called the sop. I like how the, the old King James calls it the sop. It's really just a bowl of dip that they would put the bread in, and, and actually it was kind of an appetizer to the, the Last Supper, see? And so they're all sitting there, and they're all chattering, and it's kind of a, a, a festive feast. Um, and they're talking, and then Jesus drops this bomb, like they're all chattering away, and Jesus says, oh, by the way, um, surely I say one of you will betray me. And it's like, you ever, you ever see in like a movie or TV show where they're all, t- and then there's like a, a record scratch, like, and it's quiet. Because Jesus has just said to them in the midst of this, one of you is going to betray me. Imagine how the mood changes in that moment. The chatter stops. They're all looking at Jesus. And you know, at that moment when he says that, they all obviously look at Judas, right? Because he's the most obvious one. When he says, you know, one of you goes betray me, and they're all like, Judas. <laughs> no, that's not what happens. In fact, look at what happens in verse 22. It says, and they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And each of them say, Lord, is it, is it me? Lord, is it me? Am I the one who's going to betray you? Do you know, each one of them asks because each one of them knows in their heart that they're capable of it. Each one knows that they are capable of betraying Jesus in their hearts. You and I, if we'd been sitting around that table, we would have said the same thing. Is it I, Lord? Is it I? Because even though the Bible says that when we believe in Jesus, we're a new creation, we all know that there's still some of that old traitor in there trying to take back control. And so we would say, Lord, is it I? Is it me? In one of the other Gospels, it says that Peter says to John, John, ask him who it is. Ask him who it is. Jesus puts it in an interesting way. He says, one of you will betray me. But look at, look at his response in verse 23. He answers and he said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish, he will betray me. And we all think when we read that, we think, oh, he's, he's talking about Judas. Now he's talking about Judas. And he is. But the way he puts it still leaves it kind of open. Because what we do know is that they will all dip with him in the bowl. This is a meal. This is how they eat. They will all, during that meal, at some point, dip with Jesus into the bowl. And we know that they will all, at some point, betray Jesus. Even in this story, they will all run away. When the soldiers come, they all flee. And so Jesus says, you will all 
betray me. Do you know what is comforting to me? That even though I know that I am included in that company, even though I know that I would be one who would be sitting there saying, Lord, is it, is it me? Is it me? And very likely when the soldiers came to get him, I also would flee just like every single one of those guys. But you know what other company I'm also included in? When he comes back after his resurrection and he's like, you know what? I know you all betrayed me. I still love you. I forgive you. I'm in that too. He doesn't leave me in that place of, well, you betrayed me. You're, done. You're dead to me. No, he says, I forgive you too. Thank you, Lord. I think it's, in my mind, this is a funny moment where nobody wants any more bread the rest of the meal. Where they're like, hey, do you want some more bread? No, I'm done. No, I'm good. No more, I don't, <laughs> no more bread. I'm just, I'm allergic to gluten. <laughs> no more bread the entire meal because no one wants to be the one that dips at that moment. In verse 24, he says, The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Oh, See, one of the things that Jesus points out in this, ver this verse is it is as it is written to be. This is supposed to happen according to God's plan, which was created from the very foundations of the world. This is supposed to happen. But at the same time, he says, of the one who betrays me, it would have better, it's better to not exist at all than to go to hell. A further emphasis on how bad hell will be. I just, I will hit that button every time it comes up because there are still those people who think, ah, you know, even if hell exists, which it does, even if it exists, I don't know. You know, like in the movies, it just seems like, you know, like a boring office party. No. Folks, no. Jesus says it would be better if you never existed at all than to be sent to hell. Now look at verse 25 now. Judas says, who, Judas, who was betraying, this is in case you didn't know, um, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to them, you have said it. Judas here, look at the difference. Every other one of the disciples say, Lord, is it me? Lord, is it me? Judas says, Rabbi, which is just teacher, is it I? You know what strikes me? Why did he even ask? He knew it was him. He'd already made the deal. He already made the deal for 30 pieces of silver before this. Why does Judas even bother to ask? He knows it's him. Well, you know what? Judas really isn't that different from you or I. Thinking that there are things that we could keep hidden from Jesus. Thinking maybe if no one else knows, then maybe Jesus won't know either. Friends, Jesus knows what Judas has hidden in his heart. Guess what? He knows what you have hidden in your heart. But you have an opportunity to confess it to him today. To be able to come to him and say, Lord, I have been hiding this. I have thought that I have hidden it from you. But you know what? I know you know. I know you know, I know you love me. Lord, forgive me of this. And you know what he says? I forgive you. Oh, Lord, but how could you? I mean, oh, 
Lord, I, I'm a, this must be like the 55th time that I've come and asked you to forgive me of this. And he says, I forgive you. I don't remember those other times you're talking about, but I forgive you this time. I forgive you as if it's the first time. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for forgiveness. At this point, Judas takes off. If you read the other Gospels, you can see that at some point during the meal, Jesus dips in, and either Judas dips in at the same time, or Jesus dips in and gives him the bread as a sign of saying, yes, it's you. But imagine, there, Jesus says this, um, the, the chatter picks back up again, they start talking, and, and Jesus dips, and Judas dips at the same time. And imagine Judas sees Jesus' hand in there, and he just looks up to realize he knows. He knows it's me. Now what happens is that Jesus says, go and do what you're going to do. And it says that Jesus, uh, Judas got up and he left, and he goes out to tell the, high, the chief priests where they're going to be able to find Jesus. That's what's just happened. In verse 26, it says, And they were eating. Jesus took bread, blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples. He said, take and eat. This is my body. You understand, like, this is the Passover meal, and everything in the Passover meal has symbolism attached to it, all the parts of this meal. And normally what would happen is the host of the meal, who is Jesus in this place, will go through and say, you know, this thing that we're about to eat, these, this roasted lamb shank, this represents sacrifice. And then they would, they would take part of this. And then he would pick up, there was an egg, uh, and it would say, this egg in the meal, this represents the circle of life. These bitter herbs that we eat with this meal, they represent the bitterness of slavery that our ancestors were in when they were in Egypt, but were freed from when they left Egypt. This unleavened bread, this, this, the reason they eat unleavened bread is because when God said, it's time to go, they had to leave so quickly, there was no time for them to let any of their bread rise. And so unleavened bread is what they had to eat when they had left. And so he says, this represents the fact that they were told to go and they left immediately taking just a few things with them. And with this meal, they dip this in salt water. The salt water represents the tears of slavery. All of these things would be going through. Now, with each part of this meal, there was a cup of wine that would be drank with each part. And each cup had symbolism as well. With the first cup, the, the host of the meal, he would say, this cup represents God saying, I will take you out. Meaning that he would take them out of bondage, out of Egypt and into, well, freedom, but the wilderness. I will take you out. The next cup, the second cup of the meal, the host would say, this cup represents God saying, I will save you. The third cup of the meal that they had celebrated their entire lives, the host would pick up and he said, this third cup, this cup means uh, God is saying, I will redeem you as a people. It's this cup that Jesus picks up in this meal. 
that we read about. It's this cup that they had always known for their entire lives meant, I will redeem you. Jesus says, this cup now is my blood that's spilt for you for the remission or the forgiveness or the cleansing of sin. In fact, he didn't change the meaning of that. He just broadened it. Because God was saying through the Passover meal, I will redeem you. Jesus says, this cup that you, know, you have known as the redemption cup, this cup is my blood which redeems you. The fourth cup of the Passover meal was a cup that meant that they would read it and say, I will take you up as a people. God says, I will take you up as a people. Jesus says, we're going to read about, and we've read this many times as we've taken communion. He says, this fourth cup, I won't drink until we are all together once again, when after I've taken you up as a people. So Jesus takes these elements of the Passover meal, and he begins to reassign the meaning. The bread is now my body, which is broken. The cup's are, this cup is my shed blood, which redeems you. He says they took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. It says a new covenant. He made a new covenant. You know, a covenant was a promise between two people, usually a greater and a lesser in that relationship. And the, only the greater in that relationship was able to legally break that covenant. But the covenant that God made with the people was, I will be your God if you will be my people. If you obey my commandments, then these blessings will be upon you. And so there was a little bit of a reliance between mankind having to keep up their end of that covenant, and they couldn't do it. Jesus comes in and he says, this blood, my redemptive blood in this cup for the remission of sins, this is a new covenant, but it's not between me and you. It's between me and my Father. It doesn't depend on anything that you do. It's being for your benefit, but it is between me and my Father, a new covenant. Boy, am I thankful for that. So I just am reminded every day how I can't, do it right. It, whatever, it, life. I can't do it right. Thankfully, I've got the redemptive blood of Jesus Christ covering me. I will enter heaven clothed with the righteous robe of Jesus Christ. Amen? A new covenant, he says. But he says, I, I say to you, I will not drink of this cup of the vine from now until the day when I drink it with you, drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's so cool. That is so cool. He says, I'm not going to drink this again until we're all together in heaven. Now it says uh, at, at verse 30, it kind of ends the meal. He says, and when they had sung a hymn, have you ever asked yourself what they sang? Or did you just read over that part? Like, ah, they sang a hymn. And they went out. We actually know. Do you know that we know? Basically, we know. Uh, you know, Jewish history tells us that they sang a hymn, um, Psalm 116, 117, and 118. You can read it. Actually, let's read. I'm going to read parts to you. Keep in mind, 
Now keep in mind that Jesus has come to the end of the Passover meal. He's just said, this is my body, this bread is my body. This, this wine is my blood spilt for you. He knows what's going to happen within the next few hours. He knows what's going to happen. He knows that he's going to be arrested. He knows that he's going to be tried. He's going to be beaten up. He's going to be scourged. He's going to be nailed to a cross. He's going to hang there for several hours. And then he is going to die. He knows it's coming. And so they're singing these traditional songs, uh, these traditional hymns, but listen to some of the words that they would have sang, that Jesus would have sang in singing these hymns. The pain of death surround me. The pangs of Sheol lay hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. And then I called upon the name of the Lord. Oh Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. We know that he goes into the garden. We know that he is sorrowful unto death. So great is his sorrow. In another gospel, it says that he was sweating great drops of blood. So intense was his prayer. He would also have saying, oh Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. Jesus goes in completely resolved, as we'll see today, that he goes in and says, Lord, if there's any way that this cup could pass from me, nevertheless, though, not my will, Lord, your will. I am your servant, he says. He would have sung, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good for his mercies endure forever. Let Israel now say his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say his mercy endures forever. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. Finally, I think he would have wholeheartedly saying, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Can you imagine he's off to the garden where he's going to be pressed and ultimately killed? And he's singing, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. The disciples have no idea the meaning of these songs that they're singing as they're singing along with Jesus. But Jesus knows every single word by heart, it's, they're his. It says that they went out to the Mount of Olives. You understand that as they left the city of Jerusalem, they would have crossed over the Kidron Brook. And do you understand that the Kidron Brook was essentially the drain for the temple? So as they're there, sacrificing the lambs for the Passover, the blood is running out of the temple into the Kidron Brook and down the Kidron Brook. And remember last week how many lambs I said they were slaughtering, most likely 260,000 lambs to, to, to service all of the people. How much blood is that running down the Kidron Brook? And what is Jesus doing? He's stepping over a river of blood that he knows represents what he is about to do. He knows this blood will soon be my blood. He goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, which is an interesting word. It means oil press. Um, there are a lot of oil. Uh, oh, oh, did I say oil press? Olive press. <laughs> a lot of olives on the Mount of Olives. I guess that's why they call it that. It's interesting because in order to get the good stuff, the olive oil out, you press in oil. 
This is my, my dramatics. It's just going right out the window. <laughs> you have to press the olive to get the good stuff. Jesus is about to go into this garden and he is going to be pressed. And when that happens, the good stuff comes out. The oil, the prayers, the sacrifice. He's going in to the oil press. And Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Not me, Lord. Not me. I'm Peter. I'm the rock. Remember, you call me the rock. Again, Peter doesn't. Peter didn't hear verse 32, did he? You know where it says, once I've been raised, I will go before you in Galilee. And Peter's like, ah, no, not me. I only heard the part that's about me. And I'm, I'm not going to do it. Even if these other guys, everybody else, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never stumble. Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Peter says, Lord, even if I have to die, I'm never going to betray you. And you know, in our, in our own hearts, we chuckle a little bit because we know the story. A little girl causes Peter to stumble. Even if I have to die, I will not deny you. Peter is reacting 100% based on what he's feeling in that moment. And his feelings are, are going, they're completely off base. Jesus says, you will deny me. He says, even if I have to die, I'm not going to die. And all the other guys are like, yeah, me too. Me, same, what Peter said. Even if we have to die. Then Jesus came to the, a place called Gethsemane, said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Jesus says that my soul is sorrowful. Why was his soul sorrowful? You know, he knew the ending. If Jesus knew, if, if, if anybody knew Jesus knew the ending, he knew that there was a reason why he was going through this. It was for the sake of the souls of all humanity. But still he was sorrowful even unto death. What was he so sorrowful for? But I think Hebrews 12 too gives us uh, uh, some idea because it says that he endured the cross despising the shame. And I think that you understand that Jesus had lived a perfectly sinless life his entire time on earth. Never sinned ever, even one time, but was about to go to the cross and take on all sin of all people for all time. So to go from zero sin to all sin, despising the shame, he went to the cross. 
I think he is sorrowful over the idea that he was going to have to endure sin, all of the sin. I don't actually think that he was that worried about the pain of the crucifixion or the scourging. I don't think that he was that concerned with it. I think what he was concerned with was the shame of taking on sin when he had not known no sin. Imagine he had spent all time to this point with the Father in heaven and now being, being loaded up with all of the sin of all of humanity for all time in that moment and having that time of what I believe was separation from the Father because the Father can't be in the presence of sin, which means Jesus, who had taken on all sin, would no longer be in the presence of his Father and how that must have made him agonize even for that short period of time. It says that Jesus went a little further and he fell on his face and he prayed saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not I, not as I will, but as you will. Isn't that interesting that Jesus goes and he prays and he says, Father, if there is any other way that this could happen, let it be so. Do you understand the implications? Jesus says, if there is any other way for mankind to be forgiven of their sins other than for me to die on the cross, let it be. And God said, there is no other way. Do you understand? There is no other way. Do you think that if there was any other way that God would have said, okay, Let's do it in a way where you don't have to suffer and die. Let's do it that way. If there were any other way, do you think that he was like, nope, sorry, you made your bed, now sleep in it. No, he's a compassionate God and a father who says, you know what, I know, but this is the only way. Should be offensive to you when someone says, always lead to God. Because what they've just said is that Jesus Christ went to the cross and suffered a horrendous death for no reason. For no reason. God said, there is no other way. It must be this way. And Jesus, such a servant, says, nevertheless, let your will be. And he came back to the disciples and he found the brave, never betray you, even unto death, disciples asleep in the garden. And you know, when you read through the Gospels, and you can read all four of them because they all talk about this, you get the impression that Jesus was like, you guys are asleep? One hour, I asked you to be awake. One hour, you can't be awake one hour. And they're like, oh, sorry, Jesus. Woo. You know, they must have had lamb and turkey at the Passover. There must have been some turkey in there. They're like, oh, sorry, Jesus. Woo. I, don't, I don't know what, what just happened. I think Jesus is like, what about all that? I, will, I would die before I denied you talk. He says, could you not watch with me one hour? One hour? <laughs> Suddenly I'm... God is reminding me of this literally as I'm speaking where he says, has there ever been a time when you're like, 
That's it. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to read it. The, the whole chapter. And part of the way through, you're like, <sighs> and your eyes get heavy. And he's like, really? One hour? But we're not much better than those disciples, are we? No. Not much better. Watch and pray, he says, lest you enter in temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, a second time, he went away praying, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. He goes back and he prays almost the same prayer a second time. Lord, if there, is there any other way? If there isn't any other way, then I, I will do what it is that you need me to do. And he came and he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy. Matthew puts in, he's kind to be kind to them. For their eyes were heavy. So he left them and he went away again and he prayed a third time saying the same words. Three times Jesus goes to the Father, Lord, is there any way that this cup that I'm about to drink could pass from me? If there is, let it be so. But Lord, not my will, your will. Jesus prays that three times. Rather than God saying, okay, heck with those sinful humans. Let's not do this. He doesn't say, okay. He says, no, but I will give you the strength to endure it. You see, Jesus says, Lord, is there, Father, is there any way for this not to happen? And he says, it must be so, but I'll help you to get through it. I will give you the strength to endure it. And, and this is a reminder to me. We say, Lord, remove me from this situation. He answers, I will give you the strength to endure it. We pray, Lord, remove this temptation from my life. He answers, I will give you the strength to resist it. We pray, Lord, remove this person from my life. He answers, I will give you the strength to love them like I love you. Jesus prayed, could this pass from me? He said, no, but I will give you the strength to endure it. Then he came to his disciples and he said, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of the sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So Jesus comes back. He wakes them up. He gathers all of them together, all his disciples. And he, and he says, see, my betrayer is at hand. They're coming to arrest me. Do you, know, do you know how he knew this? Okay, yeah, he's God, so he knows. You know how else? It's going to say that there was, uh, while they were still speaking, it was a great multitude. Judas had gone off and gone to the, the chief priest and said, okay, I know where Jesus is going to be. He's going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. Another gospel says that he knew that because Jesus went there a lot. He says, that's where you're going to be able to get him. And so it was said that he went to the chief priest and they gave him a, 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 a big group of soldiers. In fact, the word is cohort. Cohort. You know how many men are in a cohort? 600, 600 men in a cohort. They gave him a detachment of troops, 
of 600 men along with any of the temple guards and the high priest and at least one high priest servant that we're going to see to come and arrest Jesus. And they come with spears and clubs and, and, uh, and they're, they're coming into the garden. And so they're making a huge racket as they're coming, I'm sure, to get Jesus. And he says, here they come. See, my betrayer is at hand. And it says, and while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the 12, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him. You know that you have to understand, you've got like this whole group of people coming to arrest Jesus. They don't even know who he is. They don't recognize him. What Judas like, he's the one wearing a robe with long hair and a beard. That was everybody. So he's like, when we get there, the one that I kiss, like kiss hello, he's the one that you're coming to arrest. And it says in another gospel that they all came marching up and Jesus says, he goes up to them, he says, who are you looking for? And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Are you him? And it says that Jesus said this, I am. And he said it in such a way that when he said, I am, they fell down. Now, I imagine those words, I am, came with an echoey, godlike sound where they were like, ah! And they all fell down. You know, when, when, when Moses asked God what his name was, you know what he said? I am. <laughs> when they came and said, we're looking for Jesus, are you him? He said, I am. Now, maybe your Bible, if you read that gospel, says, I am he. The he is in italics because it was added. But Jesus says, I am. And they all fall down because I think like, the, the, the power just came out of him. And then they get up again and it says, are you Jesus of Nazareth? Although I think they kind of said, like, now they're very timid. Like, um, excuse me, sir. <laughs> so they come and, and Judas comes up to Jesus it says, now a betrayer had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. I, I mean, come on. He comes up to Jesus like he's unaware that there's 600 plus men with swords and clubs behind him. And he's like, hey, Jesus, comes on up like there's nothing weird going on and kisses him. And Jesus says, Friend, why have you come? Do you want to know something really interesting? The word friend, I don't know why I looked this up, but last night God was like, just look this up in Greek. It actually is the word that you would use if you were greeting someone who was an imposter pretending to be your friend. Did you know that? Jesus uses a specific word that means, I know you're an imposter. I know you're pretending to be my friend. Doesn't that fit right in with the entire scope of the messages that we've been talking about, about how Jesus knows the real from the counterfeit? He knows those who are pretending to be his followers from those who really are his followers. We know Judas was a pretender. He says here, friend, why have you come? He uses the word um, that you would say of someone who was an imposter. And then they came and they laid their hands on Jesus. So Judas identifies Jesus as the one by kissing him hello. And then the soldiers come around uh, after, you know, they get up off the ground and they come around and they take Jesus prisoner. They lay hands on him and they take him. And, and suddenly it says, one of those who was with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. 
It doesn't say here, but it was Peter. John writes that it was Peter. The reason John writes it and none of the other gospels do is because the, the, um, at the time of the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they were written at a time when Peter could have been prosecuted for this if they had known who it was. John wrote after, right? And so John's able to identify, oh, it was Peter. He pulled out a sword. And so Peter, a fisherman, clearly, um, pulls out uh, some rusty sword that he somehow has found in between when Jesus was like, you know, get ready for the, when you're preparing for the, you know, the, the Passover supper. And I, he must have walked by like swords are us and was like, oh, I'll take two, you know, because he had, had two swords. Um, and at this moment now, see, they take, they take uh, Jesus prisoner and Peter whips out this sword. And he just, you know, actually he was right-handed probably. And he's like trying to like hack away at this guy, and he ends up cutting off the high priest's servant's ear. Now, John also knows him uh, and calls and gives us his name. His name is Malchus, right? So Peter sees Jesus being taken prisoner. He's like, now is the time to die for Jesus. And he pulls out his sword, and he swings, and he cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. Like, he didn't even hit a soldier. I mean, was the high priest servant the one taking Jesus or was it like the soldiers? And what, was he just like the nearest guy? It was just like, whoosh, whoosh, and he cuts his ear. Now, here's the thing that is ironic to me. Peter hacks off this guy's ear. Ironically, it is the thing the guy needs in order to hear the truth about who Jesus is. And Peter hacks it off. So... I wonder how many people I have assaulted in the past feeling like I needed to defend Jesus. Jesus has put the sword away and then he heals this guy's ear. That's not in this gospel, but in another gospel it says that, that Jesus, he, he goes, whoa, 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 Peter, Peter. He picks up the ear Clearly, it had not yet been five seconds. The rule still applies. <laughs> and reattaches it to the guy's head. And he's just like, there you go. And I think, man, in my past, how in my zeal have I hacked away at people trying to defend Jesus? And really, all I've done is cut off their ears. They are not going to hear the truth anymore. They're not going to hear the love of Christ they're going to hear the hate that I seem to have for them because I just hacked off their ears. And he says, put, put that away. Now, I mean, don't dig too deep into that and say, like I'm saying, put away the word of God, which is the sword. That's not what I mean. That's not what Peter was doing. He was hacking away in his own, his own way of trying to defend Jesus and so doing damage. And Jesus says, whoa, Peter, put away the sword. All who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus says, Peter, I don't need you to defend me. I, I could pray and ask my father to send me 12 legions of angels. Do you know how many angels 12 legions is? 72,000 angels. That's how many. Uh, a legion is 6,000. He says, I could pray and ask my father to send 12 legions 
of angels if I wanted this to stop. I don't need you and your sword, Peter. Do you know how much damage 72,000 angels could do if that's what God wanted to do? Let's look into the Bible for the answer, shall we? (laughs) There is a story in 2 Kings. There was an Assyrian king um, was coming against Israel. And uh, the king of Israel, Hezekiah, said, um, I know we're not, we're not going to give in to you. And this, this Assyrian king was like, what? Do you see this, this people? You see this people? Do you see this people? I conquered all those people. Where was their God when I came in? You think your God is going to be able to stand against me? And so Hezekiah goes and he prays to the Lord. And he says, Lord, save us so that all the world will know that you are the only true and living God. And guess what? God heard and answered. That night, one angel came in and wiped out 185,000 troops of the Assyrians in one night, one angel. The king got up the next morning, came out and saw 185,000 dead soldiers. You know what he did? He left. (laughs) Now multiply 72,000 by 185,000. You know what you get? 13.3 billion. That's almost twice the population of the planet. And Jesus is like, I could call down that many angels, 72,000 angels right now, if I wanted this to stop, Peter. I don't need you to hack away with one sword. All right? Hmm. How then could the scriptures be fulfilled? And there it is that it must happen. Thus, he says, you know what? I could stop this, but then what was written of me wouldn't take place, and it must happen this way. Do you know that he is saying, my heavenly father is still in control. As bad as this seems, Peter, right now, as as dark as it seems right now, this is written of, this must happen. We look across the scope of world history right now and we could say, man, there are some dark things going on. And Jesus would say, all of this is according to plan. All of this is according to my plan. What we need to do is we need to trust God's plan, which, by the way, was established when? At the foundations of the world. In that hour... He said to that multitude, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me. But all of this was done that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. He says to them, what I have been in your temple completely defenseless without my swordmen uh, every day this week. And you could have taken me at any time, but you come to me in the middle of the night with clubs and swords um, to take me. He goes, no, no. He goes, so you know also, this is because it was written about and prophesied about, and it must happen. My father is still in control, even of this, he says. Even as he says this, look at what happens next. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. (laughs) Even if we have to die for you, (laughs) (laughs) they're out of here. Except for now. We meant a later time. We meant later on if we had to die for you. Not tonight. They all fled. We're going to end there today. We'll pick it up next week at verse 57. Let's pray.
Father, thank you so much. Lord, ultimately for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, for our sakes on the cross, for your spilt blood, for the remission of our sins. Lord, thank you for that. Lord, the gravity of what had to take place. Lord, let that set into our hearts. Lord, let us understand that it had to happen this way. It, there was no other way for it to go. Lord, it must be, it must have been this way, Lord. Lord God, I just thank you. I thank you. Lord, we are in the the season of thanksgiving. So thank you, Lord, for your provision of life beyond this life. Lord, as we enter into the season of the birth, the arrival of Jesus Christ here on earth, Lord, let us go in with just immense grateful hearts. Lord, multiply our patience our kindness and our compassion for those around us, especially for those who we know don't know you as their Savior, Lord. Lord, use us to extend that gift to them this season. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. 